our habits of interpreting stories, our habits are poorly developed because we tend to rely on stories uh, in culture that uh, do not demand much of us in uh, making connections and seeing parallels. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast. So glad that you're here. We're here to uh, gather wise conversations on how to live well along the journey with Jesus. My name is Casey Tigert. I'm your host. And today's episode is, uh, I'm glad it's actually getting to you because um, I sat down for a conversation with our guest today, O. Alan Noble, and recorded the whole thing. And, uh, or so I thought. And then uh, we looked at the screen at the same time and it, it hadn't recorded. I have my side, uh, but there's big gaps where he's talking. And so uh, tech fail all on me. So, you know, I'm just confessing to you all here what happens on the podcast. What doesn't stay on the podcast, does it? Anyway, uh, so we actually did two conversations. So we got all of our, you know, it's very slick, very you know professional because we got to practice our answers twice. Um, Alan is a, an interesting guest because uh, he's the first person I've had on who is actually uh, a professor, not in the area of like Christian theology and philosophy, uh, which is, it doesn't mean he's not a, a great voice in it. It just means he works in a different space. He's the uh, assistant professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's also the co-founder and editor-in-chief of uh, something called Christ and Pop Culture uh, that puts out resources on how Christians integrate with pop culture. He's written for The Atlantic, uh, for Vox, BuzzFeed, The Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, and also The First Things Journal. Uh, He's also an advisor for something called The And Campaign, which you can see that in the notes. We're going to talk about his most recent book called Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. And so we're going to talk about technology. We're going to talk about reading. Uh, We're going to talk about writing. We're going to talk about uh, prioritizing the content that we consume. So I'm not going to give away the whole thing. I'm just going to let it roll. Finally. So I'm glad to share with you this conversation with O. Allen Noble. Alan, man, thank you for joining me again. I already talked to the folks in the intro about our our tech difficulties, so I think we've overcome all of that. I don't remember that first conversation at all. I'm not. This is the first time I've ever talked to you. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to, I'm not a Calvinist, but I think in that moment I could become one saying it was supposed to happen. There's probably a reason. Uh, Yeah, but I'm glad to have you on the podcast, man. I I really appreciate you coming back. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Um, Feels like home. Good. I'm glad. That's what we strive to do. So um, what's interesting is you're the first professor in the area of literature that I've had on the podcast. Um, And I've talked about writing and I've talked about reading and almost everybody who's been on has had, uh, has written a book or has recommended some books or things like that. Um, What's it for you is the kind of the intersection of, because you work in Christ and pop culture, talking about popular culture and you work in the area of literature. What do you see are the overlaps between some of the things that you teach in literature and some of the things that you talk about as far as faith and culture interaction? So I think 
when I was, you know, making my decision to become an English major, one of the things that attracted me to it was the ways that it taught you basic interpretive skills, uh, cultural interpretive skills that you just end up applying all over the place, you know? So, um, the, the basic skills for interpreting poetry and novels are the same basic skills you need for interpreting, uh, song lyrics and, uh, a television show or film or drama. Now, of course, each of those different mediums have their own, um, skills and techniques that you, that, that you need to study, but, um, you can get a long way in just knowing how to do a uh, what's called a close reading, basically looking at the thing itself and studying the relationship between symbols and ideas and words and language and characters. And um, so, you know, my passions are actually a lot broader than just literature, but literature provides me the, the tools I need to do the kind of cultural uh, analysis broadly that, I, that I'm really fascinated in. Would you put the Bible, how would you place the Bible in a category as literature? Would Number you do one. that? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I should have seen sorry. that coming. Of yeah. course. Well, it's like yeah. the go Jesus pendant and all that yeah. stuff in the background. What gonna, I'm sorry. What were you going to ask? Yeah. Uh, uh, how do you, how do you uh, see the Bible in terms of literature? I mean, it, it has what we would formally call, you know, literary qualities or their literary techniques, <clears throat> symbolism, allegory, um, parallelism, um, you know, imagery that, that that is used throughout throughout the text. Um, but uh, you know, it, it, it's a text that I view, I interpret fundamentally in a, in a different way than um, a, a work of, of, of literature. Um, so uh, in, any work of literature or actually any other cultural work, I interpret as uh, humans trying to make sense of existence. Um, and so the Bible I read as uh, God uh, re- revealing uh, existence to humans. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the critical distinction for me. I heard somebody say, though, and, and this comes back to the book that you have just recently published called Disruptive Witness, I think. I, I've heard someone say that we as reader, we are not terribly good at reading story. Uh, we're very good at, because a lot of the content we consume is more, it's listicles. It's like top 10 things that you can do with your weekend. Or it's we scan for bullet points or we look for like, give me the Cliff's notes. And we're not really good at ingesting massive stories as, as far as reading them as literature. So at the same time, that person who was saying that was actually applying it to where we get messed up as far as our readings of the Bible. Does that resonate mm. with you at all? To some extent, yeah. So, um, so thinking about the Bible as this coherent narrative uh, with smaller narratives within it, um, it's a very complicated text that, that spans multiple genres. And it's true that um, our habits of interpreting stories, our habits are poorly developed because we tend to rely on stories uh, in culture that uh, do not 
demand much of us in uh, making connections and seeing parallels. Uh, so the Bible is rich with symbolism, and you know, uh, you know, the early church fathers are well aware of this. And you know, the church has this long tradition of, of for example, interpreting allegorically. Um, which, you know, I think often early church fathers took too far, but, uh, you know, let's pause, most, let's pause there for a second. So yeah. define, define allegory a little bit for anybody who doesn't know what that means. Yeah. So the early church fathers thought about what's called the fourfold method of interpretation. So they would say that there's a literal interpretation of a text. So like what historically happened. So uh, Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain to to sacrifice him. They would say that there's an allegorical, and uh, the allegorical uh, w- would have to do with uh, with uh, particularly Christ. Um, so I- interpreting a passage, say in the Old Testament, to reveal something about Christ's relationship to the church. Um, so in the story of Abraham and Isaac, we see a parallel, a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice uh, on our behalf, right? And then they also uh, understood uh, Scripture to be to contain moral teaching. So uh, in that story of Abraham and Isaac, there are moral lessons for us, and then anagogical, which had to do with. Um, uh, the future, the eschaton. That's more than you wanted to know, but <laughs> there you go. No, that's great yeah. because I, what I find fascinating is that I think people read the Bible that way. They just don't have the name for it. Right. Yeah. In any will. number of those four ways. Absolutely. Yeah. And for hundreds, if not thousands, of, you know, at least a thousand or so years, a thousand and a half, that's what the church did very explicitly is read with the fourfold method. Um, yeah. Yeah. So as we read stories, one is, we're, we were kind of talking about how it's reading the Bible, our skills are reading stories, and we read stories today that don't demand much of us. Mm. Uh, but yet the sto- even the stories in the Bible demand a lot of us unless we sort of trim them. So, for example, right. My, right. We're, we're doing a, a series at the church I serve on the prodigal son, and it, I've never heard anybody other than some New Testament scholars who I ripped it off from, talk about how when Jesus started talking about a father with two sons, one of whom was disobedient, the other one whom stayed home, uh, the parallels between Jacob and Esau and Isaac. Mm. This sort of, this history, this narrative of there's an image, there's a a device of two sons that has been used throughout the history of, of God's story with people. Yeah. And so when Jesus tells that story, there's no way he can tell it without people going, hey, wait, I think I've heard this one before. Only this one's different because in this one, other things happen that don't happen in that one. Is, is there, what do you think we lose when we lose the ability to, to see that big arc of the literature of the Bible? Yeah. So, <clears throat> so, I, so two thoughts come to mind. I mean, First of all, I, I, I agree. There are, there are lots. There's probably almost innumerable points in Scripture where there are these rich parallels. Um, I think of all the uh, scenes of people meeting at wells, um, for example, um, and 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 then in the Old Testament, and then we find you know Jesus meeting. Uh, you know, the woman at the well. And um, so uh, interesting parallels all over the place that, that are revealing, that, that can teach us things that 
um, that just a sort of a plain contextless reading will not give us. So I think yeah, that's, that's good. That's it. Uh, that's really advantageous for us. Um, I will say that you know, um, you know, historically, you know, the the average Christian was not going to have all those. Um, you know, uh, uh, quite that depth. They weren't going to make all of these connections, at least not easily. Uh, you know, most Christians wouldn't, but but it would be the expectation of pastors and 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 priests to be able to to draw these connections. So, uh, you know, I don't think everybody. Um, you know, I probably shouldn't say this because I, you know, I want English majors, but you know, I, everybody doesn't need to be an expert in, at interpreting complex narratives, right? That's not necessary for their faith to, to be mature. I will say that, that it gives you some advantages and it helps you appreciate the complexity of the text of the Bible. Um, and, and that's valuable. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. Well, and I, one of the things that I've, I've found very helpful in my own life is the value of novels to mm. not only, uh, as a partner, as a companion to scripture, uh, but also as just a, you know, as we start, as, especially as a pastor working with people, a good novel will help you engage in the story of a person. If it's well-written, you should be able to step into a person's life and circumstances. The difference being novels don't have to play by the same rules. So a novel is not there to teach you doctrine. Right. So novels can play with gray areas. So you have things like John Irving's A Prayer for Owen Meany that has a has a subtext to it. You have Steinbeck's East of Eden. You have, um, or even The Grapes of Wrath, the scene at the end with Rosa Sharon. There's, a, there's almost an image from the Psalms and the prophets of her yeah. nursing a man to life. Yeah. So there's, there are all these little pictures and parallels. Uh, but one of the things you draw out in Disruptive Witness is there's a distraction level in our culture that I think is pulling us away from those harder more committed readings. Does that jive with what you were going for? Yeah, it, 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 it certainly does. So uh, we're going to naturally, because of our, just our, our fallen nature and our tendency towards um, immediate gratification, we're going to tend toward narratives, whether it's television shows or films or books that can be easily digested. Um, so, you know, I, I would say for the average American who does read, which is, uh, a, a small number, unfortunately, who does read books regularly throughout the year, there's a, a good number whose expectation of reading is that they should only have to read something once. Um, and this is something I struggle with with my students and I try to encourage them that, you know, um, the best texts I've ever read, novels and uh, fiction and nonfiction, have required me to reread things over and over. Passages, chapters, books, the entire book. Um, <clears throat> I teach uh, the Divine Comedy, Dante's Divine Comedy, every year here at Oklahoma Baptist. And, and uh, I get more out of it every time I, I, I read it and I teach it. Uh, um, and there's that a kind of knowledge that you can only get through that experience. But so much of our culture goes against that. So first of all, we have all this new content available and there's this social pressure to keep up. Have you seen the latest episode of, of the good place? Well, why not? Oh, well then we can't talk about this. Right. Um, 
have you seen this latest, you know, Marvel film or whatever it is? So there's this social pressure to keep up with stuff. Um, and, and then there's the fact that we live very hectic, uh, stressful, anxious lives. And so, um, typically we want to retreat into stories that have some level of, uh, lightness to them that don't provoke us or unsettle or disrupt us, you know, to point back to my book. And so, um, it's challenging to encourage, you know, my students and just other people, people in general to, to say, uh, okay, I know this is going to be less immediately pleasing to read this novel, but I also know that it's better for my soul and for my personhood. So um, I'm going to do that. Uh, and the same thing is true with, with film and television and, and music, really. Yeah. There's, there's some wisdom in that delayed gratification. Yes. Yeah. Just having to wait on the payoff. I found myself anymore just I'm surprised at how impatient I get with Netflix and when they when they bomb an entire series all the episodes at once yeah how that changes then when you do because my wife and I watch The Good Place and yeah. we're watching it as it you know so we're watching it as we used to as God yeah. intended it which was <laughs> week by week uh, and how impatient you get like oh come on don't leave yeah. me hanging here well that's that's sort of the point you know, yeah. so, so that, so you're actually, so the title of your book is Disruptive Witness. Yeah. You're actually talking about a disruption. Yep. Because it seems like the norm is a surface reading or an unintentional reading or a distracted reading. And so you're actually disrupting that a bit with some of the content that you're, that you're bringing up here. I mean, I hope so. I, I mean, it's part of the argument of the book is that that uh, that narratives, that stories, have this ability to sort of get under our skin and get um, beyond the the sort of cognitive rationalist barriers that we set up the um, to faith. And uh, good stories provoke us to contemplate. Um, life's big questions, which I think most modern people are very, are highly successful at pushing aside and, and not considering. Uh, so a, a good movie will, you know, you know, sometimes require you to think about the nature of death and mortality. Um, when modern people spend a, a lot of time and money uh, and energy uh, pushing the death away from us. You know, we don't we don't have dead people in our homes as humans have for thousands of years uh, to mourn them um, before we bury them. You know, we we keep those. You know, that's unsanitary and weird. We want to keep death away from us. We keep the elderly away from us. Um, um, and so, things like death, things like beauty and goodness and love and sorrow and suffering and evil. Um, all of these things, good stories, um, can sort of enrapture us and force us to meditate and contemplate these things. And we've all had this experience. We've gone into a film and then it haunts us. We come out and for hours, we're just like, there's this mood or spirit or these questions that keep following us around. But then we're also really good at sort of moving on and shoving those aside and saying, well, you know, that was fun. I'm going to watch another episode of a good place so that I can sleep. Cause I don't want to stay up at night, you know, thinking about my own mortality. Um, so part of the book is about, you know, you know, those sort of moments and encouraging those moments, but then also, um, 
or those experiences, but then also encouraging the contemplation that we, 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 we try to avoid when we do have these moments with our yeah, so kind of moving out of distraction into contemplation, moving out of surface to depth, right. uh, mo- moving to the place where we're really considering things that we don't want to. There's a discomfort level that's very healthy to this kind of witness that you're talking about. Right. I, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's it's healthy. And I think it's, I think almost essential for for sharing the faith in in a modern context because um the i say in the book that the gospel is cognitively taxing um and to really understand that, that that you need christ and uh you need repentance you've got to do that that ugly painful thing of looking at your life and and seeing and recognizing your need for him uh, and that's not easy or comfortable and um but that's what we need to sort of be able to encourage. And when we make the gospel too palatable, or we turn it into a lifestyle option, which is, you know, I think the default setting um, for many evangelicals, then um, it's easy to for a non-believer to just blow that off and say, well, I don't have Jesus. I don't need Jesus. I have CrossFit, or I've got essential oils, or I've got my career, or whatever. Nice. And note to self, you know, there's nothing. I like a good essential oil as much as the next guy. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, nothing wrong with essential oil. I get oils. a little eucalyptus going at night, and you know, uh-huh. it's, it's it's very nice. It's very lovely. Yeah. So that's fine. No judging. So as, <laughs> so as far as like a disruptive witness immersion kit, so let's <laughs> we're going to talk about a new product line for you for this Perfect. book. Uh, for someone who comes to the place of reading and listening to what you're talking about, and they're like, man, you've, you've pressed on something that I feel like is, is defining of me. Mm. And the wisdom of what you're talking about, I really want to seize into that. Is there a, besides Scripture, um, because that <laughs> seems like it would be too easy for you, is there, a, is, there a, is there a text that you would say, if you apply some time to this, um, and learn to do that second, third, fourth reading, that next layer deep that would help them move into the spaces that you're describing in Disruptive Witness. Is there something that you would say if a student came to you and said, I want to jump into this full both feet, you know, in what direction would you send them as far as what they should look at? So are you thinking like a work of fiction that they could model, that they could practice, or... Maybe the um, thing that comes to mind for you as the thing that you identify as that's a that's a that is a piece of reading that will require everything and will help a person move from surface to depth. Mm. Oh well, uh, I mean, so I and I cite this in in the book. I mean, I think Cormac McCarthy's "The Road" is a good is 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 a good text. It's accessible. Uh, it's fairly easy to read as far as language. Uh, it is challenging. I mean, there are passages that are uh, linguistically challenging, but for the most part, it's an easy, quick read. Most people, or many people I know, have read it in a couple of set- sittings. Um, but it is also uh, sort of tears your heart out, and um, in a in an excellent way. Um, it's a beautiful piece of art that that, that forces you to ask the question. Um, why do we continue to exist? Why live? Um, because uh, the, the plot involves a, 
sort of a world where society, humanity has ceased to function. And uh, there's a man and his son, and they are surviving. And um, the father has every reason to believe that the son, that he will die and that his son will be captured and, and eaten and worse than just eaten um, because there are this food shortage. And he has to, to wrestle with this question, why keep my son alive if I have all my rational beliefs tell me he's only going to suffer tremendously? Uh, isn't the moral thing to do to kill my son? Uh, and he decides that it's not, um, and that there are other reasons to live, even though he has no reason to believe that humanity will repair itself and grow and heal. He has every reason to believe the contrary, that, that, that humanity is doomed, that it's not going to come back from this. But he continues to live, and it's an act of faith. Um, and that's the kind of text that makes you consider, okay, how much of my life, when I think about why I get up in the morning, how much of it is based on pure momentum? You know, just the fact that I've got a job, that I've got, uh, you know, this this thing that I'm expected to do, that I have this trust in the government to protect me and keep me relatively safe, that I've got family. Well, okay, strip all of that away. Why keep living? And that's not a question that most of us ask, but it's a question Christians ought to. McCarthy, that's a, that is a brilliant text. That is a brilliant text. That's a haunting story, and it gets exactly to what you're talking about. And it shakes. I mean, it, it is a story that shakes a person. You don't walk yeah. away from that going, eh. Yeah. <laughs> you have yeah. an opinion. You yeah. Either you throw it across the room or you break into tears, but there's not going to be any sort of, um, you know, <laughs> there's not going to be any sitting in the middle on that text particularly. No. Yeah. I mean, if you, if, if you do have that experience, then I'd... I, I would uh, be concerned about pathological uh, uh, <laughs> issues. I mean, uh, lack of empathy, basic human empathy, <laughs> might be a problem, and that would that would disturb me. Yeah. One of the one of the novels I typically recommend in that same scenario is Wendell Berry's Hannah Coulter. Okay. Uh, for a, for a for the reason of which is that it is slow, and mm. the culture that Berry creates is a. It, even in the narrative, the way the people move cause you as the reader to slow down with them. Mm. And, um, and the evolution of a woman in a culture that is still very Southern and very male dominated, mm. uh, but the kind of strength you see emerge in her, you have to dig for it though. Like mm. Barry, Barry's novels do not plate it up for you. Mm. Just like McCarthy, like he, yeah. he brings you into the into the middle of the maelstrom and you have to kind of figure out how you're going to stay there. But uh, Barry does it with a little more pastoral, agricultural charm, but <laughs> probably a lot more, probably yeah. a lot more. So yeah. the other the other piece of this is something that you address, which is um, the the amount of technology we have and the amount of interaction that we have with it. And that we do read quite a bit, but we don't read. We, we intake text information uh, in one way or another, but we don't, we don't read. Uh, so talk about, the, inter talk about the, the phenomenon of e-reading and digital reading and how, that, how you see that fitting into this culture of distraction that we're sort of trying to disrupt. So, um, you know, we live at a time where we're blessed with uh, virtually all of the great works of human culture 
Uh, anything that has not been destroyed by some civilization, we have accessible to us. So I can look at, you know, most of the works in most major museums online. I can read. Uh, I can get a Kindle version for fairly cheap of basically any any text that I want to read. A lot of them, especially the older ones, I can get for free. Um, it, 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 and that's uh, and a, a wonderful thing. Uh, the, the challenge can be that for many of us, our use of particularly our phones is strongly connected with two uh, things like texting and things like, uh, you know, direct messaging, uh, social media posting, which in general um, involves very uh, <clears throat> informal language and a lot of skimming. I mean, when we're reading other people's comments on our posts, we're often just kind of skimming and figuring out, okay, what is this guy saying? Do I need to respond or whatever? And, um, uh, and when we read news articles on our phones, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the texts that we read on our on our digital devices are written to be skimmed. And so it's not uncommon for an AP article to be very repetitive, uh, say the same information at the beginning and the middle and the end. Um, what this can do is it can it, it can create this habit of of skimming so that when we read something on a digital device we're it's hard for us to do that kind of deep reading where we're making connections where we're rereading um and and if we do want to actually read then um you know i i strongly recommend you know a physical a physical book still yeah and so from a wisdom perspective we we're setting aside the the easily packaged stuff and going for the the deeper stuff because of a for me it's a formation question mm. um, it's not what we read it is what we read that forms us but it's just as much how we read that forms us so as a as a follower of Jesus what what do we define as our approach towards reading and consumption from your perspective so um, I, I tend to think in terms of um, you know, an awareness that there's more good, beautiful, and true things um, available to me than I can possibly participate in. There are more great works of literature than I can ever read. Uh, this is one of the curses of being an English major, let alone an English professor, is that people are constantly, when you tell them, oh, yeah, I teach literature, they're like, oh, cool, so you've read this book. You know, this great book. I mean, so Wendell Berry, I've never read a Wendell Berry, right? Uh, and um, and that one I'm not too embarrassed by because he's still, you know, he's still alive. It's not a canon. But there's also, like, tons of great works of literature I've never read. And uh, so I get this all the time. People are like, oh, you've read my favorite book, X. And I'm like, I mean, I've never even heard of that. I don't even know who that author is. And I'm sure he's brilliant or she's brilliant, but um, are you aware of how many great books there are in existence? Uh, it is obscene. Um, and that's, a, again, that's a beautiful thing. It's a good problem to have. But what it does mean is that, I, you know, I personally have a pretty low tolerance for stuff that, that, that I think is not going to be very good. Um, uh, or... Um, yeah, and this is true in, in, in sort of all mediums. If you know, if I start a television show, 
uh, unless a good friend whose aesthetics I trust, whose judgment I trust has said to me, Hey, you know, watch, you know, through the fourth episode and then you'll get it. Unless I hear that, you know, I'm only going to give a show a couple episodes and I'm going to say, okay, I, there are better uses of my time. And the same thing with film. I know, you know, there are a lot of fun movies out there and, you know, occasionally those are, those are good, but there are also a lot of, uh, you know, great films that, that teach me more about the world that God has created that I will never see. And so there's a kind of, um, you know, prioritizing is a weighty issue for me. I, I think prioritizing is really important. Um, not just grabbing what's accessible and what's easy, but, but recognizing that my, my life is limited. Yeah. Yeah. It's that whole Psalm 90 thing about teach us to number our days. So we might gain a heart of wisdom, right? Set those things in priority in order so that they start to make sense so that, <laughs> We understand. Like that's a what? That's just a piece of wisdom that you just laid down. Like this so. is this is lived experience. Like I've dove into the show that was meaningless, and at the end of it, I felt like <laughs> I had just like mainlined an old country buffet for three straight days. And like this was a bad choice, just a bad decision. I'm never going to do this again. And that's right. wisdom, right? Yeah. Um, it's hard, and, and this is also how I deal with the you know the issue the you know, especially for my more fundamentalist upbringing, um, you know, of, of contents, you know, sometimes you know, some, for some evangelicals, this is still a big, a big issue. And, and, and I think there's some validity to it. You know, should I watch a movie that has this kind of content or, you know, it's too explicit or something like that. And, and, and in the last five years, my response has been, you know, there are so many wonderful things that you will never have time to see or watch or read or listen to that don't bother your conscience. Why don't you just start there? Because you won't get to the end of it. And just like, we don't even need to have this. Con- Honestly, we don't really need to have this conversation because you are probably ignoring amazing work, amazing films, for example, from the 1950s. Um that you would not have a problem with. So stop feeling bad and stop, you know, wasting time agonizing over whether something's appropriate and just acknowledge that you don't have to make this choice. There are other great things to look at. I mean, it used to feel like we had the choice to either, you know, you know, watch or read or listen to, uh, you know, you know, Christian music or films or whatever that were just campy and poorly made, or we could, you know, watch the great stuff and then feel bad. This is not, no, this is not the problem. Just, just be more discerning. Uh, and if it bothers you, you know, if nudity bothers you, then go watch all the great films that don't have nudity because you won't get to the end of that list. That's awesome. That's a great thought. Well, man, I appreciate you taking time and coming back. And we had a, we had a very different conversation, but the other one, the other one is legendary, but it will be lost to legend forever. But this one is just, just, it is in my, it's, it's written on the walls of my heart. Uh, this one will, uh, will be just as good and very encouraging. So thanks for writing the cool. book and thanks for taking thanks. the time. I appreciate it, man. Glad to do it. Thank you. Well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Alan Noble. A lot of good stuff in there. A lot of good stuff. Almost, Almost too much, like Thanksgiving dinner too much. So it's helpful that this is posting Thanksgiving week. Maybe you'll feel 
just as full from that conversation. I'm going to link some notes to the books that we talked about in the show. I'm also going to link to Alan's book, Disruptive Witness, so you can pick up a copy of that if you're interested. Um, Just a note, next week, interview with Felina Hewerts. It's going to be great. I already had that conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. And then the final week, uh, interview with the poet uh, Padraig Otuma, and then we're done. We're done until January of 19. So uh, keep that in mind. And if you listen and subscribe, thank you so much. If you haven't done a rating or a review on iTunes, would you please do that today? And if you stream this on my website, great. That's good, too. Hope you're enjoying the new website. Really happy with Tommy Carreras for that design. So until next time, friends, be well, live wisely. Peace. Peace.